This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Zdenka Sokolichkova, author of The Paradox of Svalbard, Climate Change and Globalization in the Arctic, published this year by Pluto Books. Dr. Sokolichkova, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Um, I work uh, as a social anthropologist, and in 2019, I started as a guest researcher at the Department of Social Anthropology at the University of Oslo with a grant that I got to research overheating in the northernmost community in the world, which is Longyearbyen, um, a small settlement that is located uh, in the high Arctic um, at the archipelago of Svalbard or Spitsbergen. And uh, this was a two years long project that was based on um, ethnographic fieldwork. So I was living there in the town with my husband and, and three kids. And I was interested in how people live with accelerated change. So the, the theme was a place that is changing very fast when it comes to natural environment, when it comes to society and economy. And that was actually the biggest individual research project that I've ever had. So it very much boosted my, I would say, professional um, career. And I, I got to learn a lot. And also this monograph is actually the first uh, monumental text um, based on ethnography that I've ever written. So it has been quite an exciting and also challenging venture, obviously. But thanks to this project and the work that I've done in Svalbard, I also got a new post, which is a, I work now as a postdoc at the Arctic Center in uh, the Netherlands at the University of Groningen though I'm a digital nomad. So I, I work for them remotely and I am based in the Czech Republic. And the current project that I've been employed um, at is about environmental memory of still the same place, the same site, which is Svalbard. Um, and we're interested in how and whether at all there is some compatibility between long-term environmental monitoring and other non-scientific ways of remembering how a landscape or environment has changed. So that that's quite an unwalked uh, route. It's an interdisciplinary project, so I still have the, the approach of, of doing qualitative research based on ethnography, but I collaborate also with natural scientists and people with uh, different disciplines. And I'm currently on maternity leave because I have just given birth to uh, our fourth kid. 
so I'm taking a short break and in April I'm supposed to continue again as a postdoc at the Arctic Center at the University of Groningen and this time working on a project that is looking into sustainability for Antarctic tourism. So I'm staying with the polar trouble, but I'm just going heading south. Okay. Well, congratulations on the new addition to your family there. Um, Thank you. Okay. So one of the things that I thought was sort of interesting in how it tied together a lot of the themes of the book is the difficulty of finding affordable housing in Svalbard. So what what are some of the factors behind this housing crunch? Okay, so this housing crisis that has actually lasted for, if not decades, then many years already, is actually grounded in the history of the settlement, which was based, founded in, in 1906 by an American businessman, John Munro Longyear. That's also why it's called Longyearbyen. Byen in Norwegian means a town. And that was a mining settlement, right? The only purpose of the settlement that high in the Arctic was to have a base from which you can mine this uh, high quality black coal that is very easily accessible, um, geologically, I mean, but logistically, it's pretty difficult, obviously. But so this was a, a company town, as they call it, which means that it's a place that at the beginning was not at all for families. It was only for the miners and some of the some of the people that were running the company. And that meant that everybody who moved there moved there because they had a job in the mine. And so also the mining company was providing housing for all of their employees, which is pretty logical. I mean, it makes sense. But then um, it developed further and around the 1960s, 50s, 60s, no, 50s, 50s is too early, 60s, 70s, um, uh, when it already was a Norwegian uh, company town because Norway bought it from the Americans 10 years after it's it was founded. So since 1916, it's Norwegian. They decided to change a little bit the policy and allowed for families to join uh, the miners living there. So the settlement changed in the sense that suddenly there were more women, more kids. And that also changed the needs of people when it comes to housing, because you cannot be sharing a room with other eight comrades uh, when you're also having your family there with you. So so then it still was a company town when people were getting their play places through the employer, but the needs were slightly different. And then in the 1990s, I would say that was kind of the, the rupture in town, in time when... Um, Coal mining stopped being the the industry of the future for various reasons. Perhaps we are going to talk about that later in the podcast. In every case, uh, Svalbard in general and Longyearbyen opened up to the world and new um, industries or new economies um, came up, also supported by the Norwegian government, which was mostly tourism and research uh, and education. And that, I mean, it opened up to commercial enterprises, to people from the outside. And suddenly there were people going to Svalbard to settle down without having an employer that could provide them with a flat or a house to live in. So people started, I mean, private persons started to buy um, housing units and then rent them out commercially. And tourism attracted, I mean, small companies started to mushroom, big companies, also multinationals started to arrive because it's obviously quite um, quite convenient financially to develop tourism at, at such a unique um, and attractive destination. 
And also all the scientists from all around the world started to come because the university center was opened in the 19, 1993, I think, and grow, uh, grew quite, uh, quite fast. So then suddenly, within about a decade, you have a place that used to be a very... Um, uh, easily legible uh, structure, uh, company town with everyone knowing everyone and everyone being employed at, at, at the same place to a cosmopolitan, very international place full of people from all around the world that were having all sorts of jobs. And only some of the employers were having housing units at their disposal to provide their employees with them. So then this created the, the, the very tough housing crisis that has been experienced already, I think, at the turn of the millennium. But I mean, I came there in 2019. It was critical and got horrendous during the COVID crisis. And I hear I'm following still the developments. It's not getting better. And the reason is that the state still doesn't want to change this policy that was there from the very beginning, which is when you go to Svalbard or to Longyearbyen, go there when you have a stable job and you have an employer who can provide you with a place to stay. But people just don't do that, right? Today, the world is very different uh, to what it was in the second half of the of the 20th century. So people come even without having a job, for example, because they, they hear or they learn online that Svalbard is the only place where you can go without a visa. It's out of Schengen. You don't need a work permit, which is, again, related to the Svalbard Treaty, which probably will will need to be mentioned in the podcast so that our listeners can understand the the legal framework that is underpinning how how life is in Svalbard and anyway it's it's a place that seems quite utopian from the outside because it's open to everyone but then then that means that you can have people coming there without having a job without having a place to stay and then they're trying to accommodate their needs on the private market which is accelerating the the, the speed of of uh, prices that are rising and it, it also means that people accept conditions that are actually either directly illegal or they're definitely not comfortable especially when it comes to families and also tourism I think contributes to this housing crisis quite a lot it's mostly seasonal um, you can imagine this high in the Arctic there is a lot of darkness in the winter so for four months it's actually dark so there is not much going on in tourism and that means that the busy period starts in february and aids ends let's say uh, august september so that's the period when the town is full of people who are trying to uh, surf this this booming industry that means guides uh, nature guides that means people who work in tourism in, in catering in hotel accommodation services you know there there are loads of jobs that suddenly pop up when when tourists start coming and also these seasonal workers need urgently need accommodation and they're um, they kind of contribute to this tension when it comes to to housing. So this this has been a known problem for a long time. But since the state, uh, the Norwegian state, doesn't want to um, how to say, um, yeah, adapt to to this new reality, and they they're quite stubborn on the principle of um, let's have the people provide themselves with housing through their employers because then they can control who these employers are mostly either Norwegian state owned or co-owned or co-controlled uh, companies. It's easier to have an overview uh, of the population, but I mean people don't obey uh, what nation states 
wish. So there's a mess uh, in town, simply said, because um, you have a lot of people in need of housing and it's not going to be solved. It might seem as an easy political task to tackle, but it's not. It actually it's actually catch twenty two in a way because the the government wants uh, new industries and new economies, but it doesn't want opening up and accommodating the needs of these new people that have to take up the jobs that are that are appearing with the new economies. Yeah, and then it sounds like environmental change is part of the picture too, because there have been some uh, housing that's been either damaged by landslides or like preemptively shut down. Uh, out of concern for uh, those kinds of of things. Is that right? That's very true. Yeah. So um, people normally, when they, if they have heard about Svalbard before, they probably have heard about it being the uh, hotspot of, of the climate crisis and, and global warming, because indeed, because of the Arctic amplification, these Arctic places are warming up much faster than other parts of the planet. This is also obviously true for, uh, for Longyearbyen. And so you have, you know, all these typical, uh, typical symptoms of, um, of the of the climate crisis, like uh, temperatures that are increasing, awkward, extreme weather events that you can have downpour in the winter, that you can have lots of snow that are coming at awkward um, times of the year, or strange winds that you have um, sea ice that is diminishing or not even appearing at all during a season. So we're soon having a North Pole that will be ice-free um, glaciers that are drastically retreating that you can even notice within, I mean, the difference within a, from one year to another. So all these all these typical things are very visible also in Longyearbyen. And as one of my colleagues, a social anthropologist, Alexandra Meyer, has, has written in her paper that there has been an avalanche in December 2015, which gave um, climate change a face uh, in Longyearbyen in the sense that before climate change as a as a term was still rather an abstract concept but when the avalanche hit uh shortly before christmas um and destroyed 11 houses and also killed two people one of them was a two-year-old girl it was a shock um like a great rupture in the collective memory of the community and people suddenly started to think about climate change in relation to this avalanche which was i mean yeah uh, directly um, endangering their lives while thinking being safe at home. So uh, because of this avalanche, um, as I also uh, write in the book and develop further in another paper that I've been writing together with, with Alex Meyer already mentioned, uh, this, this avalanche has been also used um, as a token kind of of climate change and to push um, an agenda that is related to the housing crisis that we've been talking about before, which is that this this area uh, under the mountain from which the avalanche came has been um, kind of indicated uh, or identified as, as a risk zone. And that meant that I think over 160 housing units have been demolished uh, and they were partly replaced but those housing units were more open for people to rent from all the different economic sectors that exist in town, while the new housing units that have been built since are only available for state employees. So that means that it has tightened even um, 
the lack of housing or made it worse because these these housing units were demolished uh due to the to the risk of of an avalanche in addition there has been a um there have been avalanche fences built on the on the mountain of Suketopen. so if you go to longyearby and you immediately see i mean the, the visual um impact on the town has also been dramatic and other avalanche protection measures so so the topic of climate change in relation to these hazards or risk risks has been very prominent since 2015 and and indeed worsened the housing crisis. Okay, so you mentioned the Svalbard Treaty uh, in the course of that last uh, answer. So let's kind of go back and fill that in for the listeners. So what is the legal status of Svalbard and its uh, political relationship with Norway? I'll start from the, um, the deeper past. So for Many long centuries, uh, Svalbard was actually considered terra nullius, meaning uh, no man's land. It didn't really belong to any country, any nation state. The first person who is historically recorded to have uh, observed, um, let's not say discovered, uh, Spitsbergen, as it was called by then, was a Dutch um, uh, seaman Willem Barents and Spitsbergen means a pointy, pointy mountain. Uh, that's what many of the mountains in, in Svalbard look like. And that was at the end of the 16th century. And since then, there were many, uh, many countries that were interested in the natural resources that were available. Uh, in the beginning, obviously, it was um, industry such as whaling, perhaps was the most monstrous one. Um, there were many, many countries, Englishmen, Dutchmen, uh, Swedes, um, Scandinavians in general, that uh, uh, participated in the in the whaling industry and pretty much uh, deplenished, uh, um, killed all the whales quite fast that were available by then. And then, yeah, hunting, sealing, um, and the deposits of the coal uh, were discovered at the end of the nineteenth uh, century. And that's uh, that's when coal mining became one of the main uh, main interests for many countries. And again, Americans were also in the plane. And suddenly, Svalbard, which was no man's land, became a place of potential conflict in the future because there were many resources available and it belonged to nobody. So then uh, countries try to figure this out, uh, how to solve the problem. But then the World War One came. And after the First World War, Norway, which was a relatively uh, fresh, young, independent country, rather poor, uh, but dynamic and ambitious, um, managed to draft this document that was quite unprecedented, I think, in international law that was called Svalbard Treaty or Spitsbergen Treaty in the beginning. Uh, so it was signed in 1920 and came uh, entered into force in 1925 and since then um, Svalbard actually belongs to the kingdom of Norway it's part of the kingdom of Norway but the Svalbard treaty is is very specific in how it um, delineates uh, Norway's sovereignty so it's it's an absolute sovereignty that Norway has over the territory but there are conditions which are that Norway has to govern um, the territory in a way that is in line with what all the signatory parties have, have agreed upon. Uh, until today, I think it's 44 countries that have signed Svalbard Treaty. And I think uh, Turkey has applied recently and it's open for, for any other country to join later. And so the, the nationals of all the signatory parties have to have 
free access to the territory. So you have to be allowed to go there. That's why there is no visa requirements. That's also why many Norwegian laws that are valid on Norwegian mainland cannot be valid in Svalbard. For example, the immigration law or the social security law and many others that are quite relevant also for my work. So it's it's this open territory where anybody uh, from the signatory parties is welcome. Plus, Norway is also um, obliged to uh, protect the natural environment that is considered vulnerable, and it should not that the place the place should not be used for uh, military purposes. And there are some more um, clauses. It was written in 1920, so it's a lot about mining. And yeah, a very important point that I haven't mentioned yet yet is that that the whole the whole point about the Svalbard Treaty is that since there are all these very rich natural resources, countries that sign the treaty, their nationals and the companies should have equal um, access, uh, equal conditions uh, like Norwegians to um, to to gain these natural resources. So it was a lot about mining. Tourism and science were not a thing in 1920. So they're, they're not really... Um, explained how Norway should go about this. And that's also where uh, where there are many misunderstandings and, and perhaps conflicts of, of interpretation. But the purpose is that people can come freely from the signatory parties and they can engage in economic activities using the, the natural resources available. So this document celebrated um, 100 years in 19 in 2020 and it's likely that it will last but obviously there there have uh, always been a few countries that have been challenging the way Norway is governing the territory and they're claiming that it's it's um, in conflict with what Svalbard Treaty delineates and that's probably not very um, surprisingly Russia and recently also China so these are very ambitious countries that, that have their plans in the Arctic and they're trying to challenge Norwegian sovereignty over the, the territory while the rest of the countries um, uh, seem or ha have, have until uh, now seen uh, the, the Norwegian sovereignty as, um, as absolute and also legitimate. You might have heard about a conflict with the European Union. I'm not an expert on marine law, so I would not dwell too much into it. But there's, there's an issue about um, snow crab, uh, which is a new species that is arriving to the Arctic with the global warming because it's, it's thriving in, in the warmer waters. And there has been a conflict uh, between uh, European Union and Norway uh, how far from the coast of Svalbard Norway is entitled to uh, decide on rules on who will harvest the resources because the European Union would claim it's it's a shorter distance while Norway claims it's it's much much longer 200 nautic miles I think uh, but um, anyway so uh, th this is this is the situation today um no word has ever been changed in, in Svalbard Treaty, which is also a pretty short document. Um, and as said, it's it's unprecedented um, in the international law. Very interesting document. And uh, that's also what makes the place so special and unique and, and intriguing, both for people to live there and for social scientists to study it. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. 
Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I want to now pick up on this economic change that we're talking about going from you know, coal mining, which everybody understands is a very extractive kind of industry towards tourism and science, which you're arguing are extractive in their own way, uh, even though they have a, a much more kind of green reputation that there's an extractive dimension to tourism and science in Svalbard. So could you elaborate on that point? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to argue that it's it might seem uh, like a black and white story that you have coal mining, which is dirty, which is I mean, coal burning coal uh, certainly contributes to the climate change. So that's that's the bad thing kind of in this black and white picture. And then you have the good thing, which is uh, tourism, meaning that people go to these places and they see how they're melting away and they will become more conscious about the danger of climate change and perhaps change their behavior and science also uh, seems to be um, an environmental neutral or even positive um, economy. But what I'm trying to argue in the book, uh, what I've seen in the in the ethnography is that there is um, um, a sort of a kinship between these industries. Obviously, there is something um, there is something very physical uh, and very brutal about coal mining, meaning that you penetrate the mountains and you take out this substance and then you burn it. Um, so this extractivism is kind of very, very uh, visible and obvious. But I argue that uh, tourism and science or development, you know, development of, of green technologies uh, can be extractive in a softer way, but there still is this red thread of doing things um, for the purpose of a profit uh, and taking something out of the environment without giving anything back to it. And I think that is something that, that is very typical uh, for long European slash slash Svalbard. So in, in, I think it's easier to see it in tourism because um, when it comes to, for example, the ecological footprint of, let's speak about conventional cruises, for example, because cruise tourism has been booming perhaps the fastest in Svalbard and also in generally in, in Arctic and also in the Antarctic, probably globally. Uh, that the footprint of of this uh, concrete um, face of the industry is is immense. All the people um, that are living on these huge luxurious uh, ships and the the level of consumerism and also the way of how you actually consume the place, right? It's not that you're learning that you're opening up your horizons or that you're going through a transformative experience it's just one more thing on your bucket list and um, spending little time frenetically moving on the sea routes to to visit all these places and take the selfies and and kind of you know then these people are actually mining um mining memories mining images mining experiences um uh, so it's it's a softer extractivism but it, there still is the extractive um um, aspect of it also when you look at for example the living and, and working conditions of, of people that are employed by the industry um, people are usually quite surprised to hear that the biggest um, ethnic minorities or national mi minorities in Svalbard are people from Thailand and the Philippines 
So these are people going there because uh, tourism generates a lot of jobs that are not attractive to Europeans or Americans. And they are also um, more eager to accept uh, working conditions that perhaps Europeans or Americans would uh, decline uh, because they can still earn relatively good money there and they can send remittances back home and perhaps uh, support their loved ones. So it still makes sense to them um, to take up these jobs and maybe suffer. Also in this cold climate, when you come from a tropical tropical country, it's not easy. In addition with this housing crisis, in addition with Norwegian laws that are not valid, so there is very little protection when it comes to um uh these 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 workers that work in precarious uh jobs so um, yeah um well, how did i get get here what was the <laughs> what was... <laughs> we were talking uh, about the um the svalbard treaty and you know the um status that that gives this territory as yeah, and extractivism, to... right? I was talking about oh, yeah, the extractivism, extractivism. Yes, the extractive aspect of tourism. So, so that's that's uh, these these workers in the precarious jobs or the guides who have also very often unregulated working hours and and living conditions that are um, quite scandalous. They also suffer from this extractivist um, aspect of of tourism. And I think, yeah, the ecological footprint of tourism um, has been becoming more obvious and more discussed. And I also also think that the industry is um, is aware so they're trying to tackle uh, this issue and become more sustainable become greener and for example in, in the case of Svalbard I think conventional cruise ships will uh, will disappear soon because Norway is changing the laws and they're for example banning heavy fuel that is used by many of these huge ships so those won't be probably returning to the place but um yeah, so it's it's I'm arguing about this this more um um yeah abstract or philosophical um aspect of of the industries um, showing that the extractivist um, point of view is still there it's still present so it's it's not really black and white there are many colors and many shades that are um it's it's useful to be critical about this black and white story about coal mining being bad and tourism and science being good also because of the local source of energy right so coal is the only thing that is actually locally available all the other stuff has to be imported and then how do you count the ecological footprint <clears throat> what comes in the calculation when you have to for example import diesel or um whatever the the, the future uh, energy source will become for longyearbyen because coal mining is going to be phased out for sure uh, within a couple of years yeah so circling around to the, the climate change issue so a lot of the, the book is hearing from people in svalbard of uh, their perspective on climate change and it seems like uh frequent theme there is people saying, well, yeah, climate change is a thing, but there's all this other stuff going on too. Whereas, you know, outsiders might just see Svalbard as part of this big global story about climate change, but the people living on Svalbard see a lot of other things, um, you know, playing into uh, the, the things that outsiders might point to and is like, yep, that's part of the climate change story. That's part of the climate change story. Exactly. Yeah, that was also in partly it was also the image that I was having in my mind when I was going uh, as an ethnographer to Longyearbyen. It was this big um, 
a rather monothematic story of climate change. But then when I started to talk to people, I, I noticed exactly this, what you point out, that people are busy thinking about many other things than climate change. And they also, when you ask them about yeah, developments um, when it comes to life in, in the town in the recent years, they... They, they don't see a point in uh, dividing uh, the story of environmental change and economic change and social change. They see it, they live it as an entangled thing. And that was what intrigued me. And I think it makes sense to look at these processes as um, as linked, because indeed they are. Uh, I mean, tourism, but you can look at the economic effect uh, of tourism, but you cannot uh, avoid the ecological um, um, impact, neither the social one. So it makes sense to look at it through the eyes of, of my research participants, because they see them as connected. And for some of them, environmental change is indeed the most worrisome. Um, so you have some groups in town that that do have a lot to say and also personally relate to and, and be concerned, young people, um, activists, but climate scientists, there are many natural scientists, and normally these are young, highly educated, and they 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 know, they see what's going on and their their work proof it. So so they're very busy thinking about climate change. But then you have other groups in town, for example, the miners or retired miners or people who have relatives that have been um, connected to the mining company, and they obviously have a very, very different take on, on climate change. They try to relativize it because it's a coping strategy for them, because it's very difficult to acknowledge that your whole life story is actually connected to something that has been doing a bad thing to the global climate or that is worsening living conditions for people on the other part, side of the planet. So I can totally understand why they're reluctant to um, to play this 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 uh, climate change card, but they also have a point in in showing. But look at yeah social inequalities. Look at the segregation that has been going on since this town has become so cosmopolitan and super diverse. Because listen, this is a place very tiny. It's a village actually, two thousand five hundred people, but more than fifty nationalities, and you have people of all sorts, really, from analphabets to highly educated single people, uh, young. Uh, elderly, there are not too many, but there still there still is a handful. May, very many families with small kids, with with um, grown up kids. It's it's very very diverse. Uh, also within the national minorities, also within the Thai and the Filipino group, uh, it's not true that these are low skilled people. Not at all. It's just that. For example, their diplomas are not being acknowledged. So that's why an interior uh, designer has to accept a job uh, serving breakfast in a hotel. So it's it's an extremely diverse and very thrilling for an ethnographer uh, community to study. But these uh, these different groups have different um, foci, I would say. They, they notice different stuff. And these are all pro processes that are going parallel, hand in hand, or some of them trigger other processes. So I was interested in in listening to all these stories that, that are sometimes very complex and messy and you you tend to snarl up in those uh, because it's difficult to to find out okay what 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 is the what is the red threat what is the story that I can narrate in the book so that it makes sense. It's not not just a mess of, of all sorts of processes going on. 
but I think I tried in in the book to to stick to these three uh, these three themes: um, environment, economy, and and society or community, and show uh, through different angles and and the voices of my research participants what are these stories of change and what what they can teach us about climate change and globalization and social inequality and justice um, in today's world. Yeah, the thing I found interesting about Svalbard. Uh, as a place to do this kind of climate ethnography, as compared to you know other ones that I've read in other places, is the the rapid turnover of the population, because most of the people in Svalbard are not you know there their entire life; they're there a, a much shorter period of time. So, how does that affect people's perspectives and their the role of memory in understanding uh, climate change and environmental change? Hmm, this is quite a tricky question because, um, yeah, I mean, obviously the turnover, the fact that people come and go is quite decisive in, in many aspects. So the, the average uh, stay, I think now is something between four and seven years, but there are some segments of the economy where people come and go even faster, which is, for example, the state bureaucrats, which is quite critical because those are people that are actually locally governing the place and they're they're coming and going really fast. So you always have this learning phase and then you start to understand where you are and then you leave again. So there is very little continuity and also loss of knowledge is something that people have been talking about a lot also in relation to this um, to this avalanche that happened. So it is indeed related to the memory of the place when it comes to people who uh, inhabit it. There is a handful of families that have a longer history in Svalbard. I think I mentioned it also in the book that the the research participant that I met who had the longest personal history was, so he was the fourth uh, generation. His children were the fifth generation living in Svalbard, which is not too long. I mean, it's it's about 100 years. So it's, it's a very um, fluid place in the sense that there is a stream of, of newcomers, which makes it also very accommodating for newcomers, because every almost everybody has been through the same thing, arriving there as a, as a new person and then getting to know others. So there are also positive sides about the turnover. But yeah, this environmental issue, I think I, I kind of noticed it during my work, because I soon understood I need to talk to people who actually have been living there long, because otherwise I end up having conversations with everyone telling me, yeah, you know, I've been living here for three years, so I don't really know. But what I hear from others or what I hear from those that have been living here long. So that was also one of the motivations for me to learn Norwegian as fast as possible so that I could actually talk to these old timers or veterans many of them grumpy old men, uh, many of them uh, former miners or their families. Um, but there are also some people that have been living there for 20, 30 years that started some some tourist tour company. So also people working in tourism that have been living there long. But anyway, to start to talk to people that actually have lived through these environmental changes, those that remember the fjord that is called the ice fjord, which used to be covered with ice, which is something that is very, very um, awkward to imagine for, for the newcomers because it hasn't happened for many years already, probably will never happen again. Uh, during our lives so 
that was an important thing for me to to get access uh, to this segment of the population of the people that have actually seen and lived uh, how the place has warmed up. And again, among them, uh, the the level of concern is very uh, varied which is related to their personal life stories. What is the main kind of theme or main concern uh, of that at the moment? And for many of them, it's not the climate. It's it's rather the economy or the, the social outlook of the, of the place. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, learning Norwegian. And that was a thing I noticed as you were talking about your research process in the book, that it sounds like you started out doing most of your interviews in English, but then you found that you... Uh, you know, could get a different perspective on things uh, by talking to people in Norwegian. So what was the role of that choice of language in doing the research and being able to, you know, connect with people and get their their stories and their perspectives? I think I was a bit naive when I went uh, to Longyearbyen thinking that I can do this in English. Um, but I mean, there wasn't much information about the place Um in, in English, there were many writings that were in Norwegian, so inaccessible for me, from which I would have understood that knowing the language is actually still quite important, exactly, for example, because of this fact of those staying long, the vast majority of them being Norwegian. And even though Norwegians or Scandinavians, Finno-Scandinavians usually um, imagined as, as speaking fluent English, they do speak good English, but when you ask them about their personal memories, experiences, emotions, it's much, much easier and it's natural that it's um, it's better to do it in your mother tongue. So that's uh, that was my fault, kind of a lack of competence on my side, which I realized quite fast. Uh, so I think it did a very good thing for my research because one, people realize that I'm taking this seriously. I'm taking their story seriously. I want to listen to them. I want to ask a proper question and I want to understand everything they're telling me. And that's why I have invested or I invested a lot of time and energy into learning Norwegian during the first year of my stay. It's a very typical thing in, in anthropology. That's that's nothing, nothing new and no rocket science that uh, knowing the vernacular opens up. Uh, and opens up doors and it's a gate uh, to the community in a way. So, um, and it definitely was also um, a very important tool, working tool for me when it comes to all sorts of writings, you know, documents, uh, papers from political meetings, knowing knowing the language made it much, much easier and richer. I think it's, um, you have a very narrow entry point uh, if you come to that place only, uh, I mean, without knowing Norwegian, obviously there are, it would have been very handy to know Thai or speak uh, some of the Filipino languages that are spoken in, in town, but I couldn't, couldn't manage that within two years. So um, there I have to, I had to rely on, on field assistants and translators, but Norwegian is not a very difficult language when you speak English and German. And um, yeah, it was worth um, the pain of, of learning it. It definitely paid off. All right. So as we're moving towards the end of our time, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book. Well, the first uh, thank you would definitely go to Thomas Elon Eriksson, who is a person um, who believed in me uh, already in 2016, I think it was, when I sent him an email. He's a social anthropologist living uh, uh, in Norway. 
pretty well known, I would say, beyond Europe uh, for his work. Also, globalization and climate change has been uh, one of his uh, research topics. Uh, as he says, he's a coconut boy, so he has been doing ethnographic research in other parts of the world, definitely not in the, in the cold and dark um, uh, parts of the planet. But um, when I contacted him, I knew him briefly since 2015, and I sent him an email saying that I would be up for this um, research venture. And he believed in me and supported my grant application. And thanks to that, I believe, because he was the mentor of my project, the Marie Sklodowska Curie uh, Individual Fellowships. That's why I got the money and, and had the opportunity to do this ethnographic fieldwork. So without him, without his support, his help as a mentor, and also as giving me comments and um, yeah, motivating me to write the book, to, to finish up uh, this project and, and disseminate the results of my work. And, this would not have happened. It would not have existed at all. So I think he's the the first um, first person to thank. And then, you know, there are hundreds of people that I've met on my way, my research participants, and a handful of them have also become friends. And I think it would take too long to name them all. So I would just like to say that I realize um, that nothing can be achieved uh, by yourself. You're, you're all your life, you're dependent on love and empathy uh, of others. And I've seen this very much during the ethnographic fieldwork and while writing the book. And also, obviously, my family. Everybody who was very tightly um, uh, around me, uh, seeing me and experiencing me nervous and uh, not sure whether I'll manage such a, such a task as writing an ethnographic monograph and who still believed I could make it. Um, so all those people around me, I almost feel like this should be a collective monograph, you know? It's, it's not one person who has written it, but it's been thanks to the help of all the others. But this is the world we live in, that we write um, single-authored books, but there are these hundreds of people who help this um, uh, be born, exist, and, and develop. And now that the life of the book is... Um, is after all this has been finished, right? That how it will be received by readers and what kind of questions it will trigger in my audience. That's completely beyond my control. Uh, but but they also the readers, the readership is is part of the whole of the whole story. Okay, and so then that brings us to our traditional final question on the New Books Network, which is, what are you working on next? Yeah, as I've mentioned in the in the intro, I'm quite thrilled to uh, have this new upcoming postdoc position in a project that is called Guide Bast, and that's about Antarctic tourism. So as you know, Arctic tourism has been a thing for quite a while. Antarctic tourism is um, perhaps younger. But it's booming equally fast. Uh, it's, it's very, very attractive. It's kind of the last uh, outpost on planet Earth before you fly to moon, kind of. Uh, very otherworldly environment, very environmentally vulnerable and very fast warming up. So there are many parallels with the Arctic or with Svalbard, but there are also many, many things that are different. And this this project that is called Guide Bass, that is funded by the Dutch uh, Research Council, is relatively applied in the sense that we're trying to figure out uh, what sustainable tourism in the Antarctic means, whether anything um, as polar ambassadorship uh, actually exists, because this ambassadorship is, is a concept that is being heavily used in the tourism industry as a good thing. And we want to explore what it means, whether it actually exists. And we're focusing on the tour guides. So these are the the, the first hand 
kind of um, mediators of the Antarctic environment when it comes to uh, tourists and how they experience it. So we're going to talk to guides um, about their motivations to work in the industry, how they see it developing, uh, and what kind of guiding styles they develop, what kind of message they want their their guests to go home with um, to see whether or what kind of activities, touristic activities in the Antarctic can indeed have either a good positive impact or at least a neutral impact, because we believe that there are many activities going on and growing or with the potential of growing that are actually environmentally unsustainable and should not be supported and should be therefore uh, banned by the international community. So the, the project is, is again linked to environment, change, um, sustainability, uh, but I'm looking forward to changing the research side. Obviously, this cannot be long-term fieldwork. I cannot drag a family of six to the Antarctic. There's no place where we could live. <laughs> that will be a fieldwork on board of, a, of an expedition cruise ship. But it's it's going to be exciting. And, and I hope I can build up on the um, yeah capacities and skills that I've gained during my work in, in Svalbard. All right. Well, we'll definitely be looking forward to seeing the results of that. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for inviting me and enjoy reading the book. This has been a conversation with Zdenka Sokolichkova, author of The Paradox of Svalbard, Climate Change and Globalization in the Arctic, published this year by Pluto Books. 